Hi. I'm so glad I get to be here today. And we don't do this very often where clergy are actually stand up and talk about ourselves. We don't do that very often. But you're going to hear part of my story today because our stories are connected because we're part of the same clergy family. And so where are the Kleenex? (laughs) I'm going to need some. I'm sure of it. Thank you. Um, Whenever I speak in a church or whenever I speak about God, um, for instance, when I went to Pelo Elementary School over there on the east side uh, not very long ago, I always uh, take my shoes off. And I do that because whenever we're talking about God, we're on holy ground. And the very first thing that God said to Moses when he met Moses on the mountain was, take off your shoes. You are standing on holy ground. And so when we have our shoes off, we are connected to the ground and we are vulnerable. I cannot tell you the number of times my feet have ached because I had frostbite when I was a little girl, 12 or so. And so when you get frostbite on your feet, your body has great memory. And so whenever your feet get cold, they hurt because it's God's way of saying, I don't want you to be stupid again. <laughs> and so um, that, but that connectedness to the ground, knowing that uh, I am completely vulnerable, that's what it is to serve God, to be completely vulnerable in all of the parts of your life. And that's a little bit what we're going to talk about today. But first, I'm going to pray too. Let's pray. God, pour out your heart on our hearts. Flood them. Because they are cracked open right now. And we know that when our hearts are cracked open, you have access to areas we don't normally show you. Heal them. We offer them freely and willingly to your grace. We pray in the holy and precious name of your Son, who is our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. I was appointed to the Rock United Methodist Church. It was a new church restart. Uh, I was appointed there in January of 2001 when their first pastor um, left the church and the ministry. He he later died of cancer, um, and he gave me permission on on his deathbed when I went to go see him uh, to tell his story to the extent that it would be helpful, okay? So I'm going to tell just a little bit of his story as it relates to my story. Here's what happened. Oh, good, you guys get to give $10 to nothing but nets. Do you have that rule here? I always forget that not every church has that rule. But in, the United, in, in our United Methodist Church, when, when somebody's cell phone goes off in worship, I do the dance of joy because it means they have to give $10 to nothing but nets. So, yay! <laughs> Woohoo! I'm grateful! Here is what my friend Robert Harenga told me as he was lying on his deathbed. He said, Tina, I was the new church start pastor, and that's such lonely work. And it's fraught with failure. And your clergy colleagues look at you as if you're kind of, I don't know, a leper. And they don't really understand what it means to go to a place where there is no church. And then to, to stand around faithfully while God builds the church and then makes a building for the church to go when it rains. 
they don't understand. And, and I had done everything that I thought I was supposed to do, and I had forgotten to let God do what God was doing, and I got desperate. The money that the conference had provided was gone, and I knew that the church was going to fail. Now, just to give you some context, our conference, and we're all in the conference together, our conference had had nine new church starts fail before the rock. Nine. And this man had spent all of the money on really good things, but there was no church there still. They called me and asked me to take that appointment. I took the appointment in January of 2002. And when I got there, the conference money was gone, and there was still no church. I had transitioned from a career in consulting. I happened to have a Ph.D. in applied chemistry, and I was the world expert in mercury. I always say it like that. Nobody cares. It's not that important. So I went from a power job to this, and nobody told me that a new church start was hard. So I prayed, and I said, okay, I'll do that. I was appointed. When were you guys appointed to? 2002. And so David and I met uh, at Covenant Connection, in fact. He was an elder in full connection. I wasn't yet graduated from seminary. Uh, And so he and I met, and we got to meet once every other month because of Covenant Connection. Because of that, we started calling one another. So is this happening at your place? (laughs) Have you run into this before? And so we had coffee every once in a while, and it was lovely. We really helped each other get through that very lonely work that very lonely, isolating work of doing a new church start. When we sign up to be elders in full connection, there's two kinds of clergy. Did you guys know that? Raise your hand if you knew that. Oh, cool! In the United, yeah, you know everything. <laughs> in the United Methodist Church, there's two kinds of clergy that are ordained. One is called an elder in full connection. That's what I am. That's what David is. One is called a deacon. Okay, an elders church, uh, an elders church, there's a Freudian slip. (laughs) An elders call is to word, service, sacrament, and order of the church. Our primary call is inside the church body with the body, building up the body of Christ so that the body of Christ can be church in the world. That's our primary call. Okay, our job is to tell our church all the time, that they have to put their whole lives, all of the pieces of their lives, everything, time, money, attention, vocation, everything in God's hands. That's our job. The deacon's job is to connect the church and the world. That's a different job. Deacons are often called to place, and they are ordained to word and service. Deacons are often called to place. Elders are called to the greater church, which means that part of our job is to put our whole lives in God's hands. People don't like itinerancy. I love itinerancy. 
And I moved last year from the new church start where I got to stand around while God built it up to far east Austin, about the opposite end of the scale. I love itinerancy for this reason, because as a pastor, it allows me to stand in full integrity in front of the churches in which I preach and say, I think our call is to put our whole lives in God's hands. And itinerancy is how I walk that talk. Because, you see, it's not the bishop and the cabinet who are calling me to move. It is God working through the greater body of the church. And I can do nothing better than submit my whole life to God. Sometimes that's hard. I'm uh, knitting this right now, and I intentionally brought it with me this morning. This is for a young woman in East Austin who has just turned 21. I think she's called to ministry. She's starting to figure that out for herself. And because the parsonage at Parker Lane is humongous, bigger than stupidly big, we have two roommates. One of them is will be commissioned as a deacon in the United Methodist Church this coming summer at annual conference. And one of them is this young woman who we believe are, is called to ministry. And this is, uh, she's going to be our lay delegate to annual conference this year. And this is what I'm going to finish by annual conference and give to her. This is the story of an elder's life right here. Do you see the white background and every other stitch is white, reminding us that God is always, always, always present, no matter what? Do you see the beautiful patches, stripes, diamonds of multicolored yarn? It's so soft. I'm going to get you guys to come and pray over this to touch it. It is It is the church in all its diversity and wonder. Being the church, really being the church. This is the church where you have those days sometimes where the church doesn't behave like the church. I'm sure it never happens here. (laughs) But it occasionally happened at the Rock. And so this is the church when it's like, ah, we could do better. And this is the church when we are able to completely connect to what God's vision is and grow with God. Do you see? There are more of these times than there are of these. And the vision of the diverse greater church runs through everything. So if you want to touch that and say a prayer for Angel, which is her name, I sure wouldn't mind that. When we call... When we are called, it is like Abraham's call. How many times have you heard this scripture recently? Have you heard it recently? Oh, cool. I'm going to read it. I won't read a whole bunch. I might. I, um, I know most of scripture. I've read it over and over. But I always turn to the page because there's something about touching, right, uh, that's important. And so... You'll see me struggling with the pages. I know where all the books are, and I still struggle with the pages, right? So um, the Lord said to Abram, I'm in Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go. When you get that call or when I got that call and um, the district superintendent said to me, uh, I would like permission to mess with your life. And I said, 
I think you have permission by function of your office. (laughs) She said, yes, but I would like your actual permission. You see, I'd been dreaming of and recognizing the fact that we as a church are starting to lose our ability to do church in urban centers where the more people you get from the neighborhood, the worse off you are financially because most of your neighbors are living below the poverty line and cannot support the church financially. You should see the ties we get at Parker Lane. They're awesome. I got one guy that puts his tithe in his envelope every single week, and it's like $2.57 or, I mean, it's just faithful. And not enough money. You know what I'm saying? Very faithful. We've lost the vision that John Wesley originally had about what do you do, how do you do church in and with the poor, okay? And, And I have a passion for that because I come from generational poverty. That's different than having no money. It's a different culture. So I had been talking to DSs and bishops about that because I'm that girl. And so they said, we want you to go to the east side and help us imagine what could happen. And I went home and told my husband, I think we need to pray about moving to the east side. And he said, I'm golden. That's my old neighborhood. He was immediately fine with it, but that didn't mean that it was easy for him. We said yes, and we moved. That was difficult, and I'm going to describe the stages that we went through, okay? We moved. Church started saying goodbye. Now, I was at a new church start. They had never done this before. Many of the people that came to the Rock had not been in church before, and they certainly hadn't been in a United Methodist church before, and so the whole thing is, you're moving? Why are you leaving us? Why is the bishop so mean? (laughs) Yeah, I heard a lot of that. And so my job as a new church start pastor was to do some education in that moment to remind us that we are a connectional church, which means that we believe that church should be connected between locations, between generations, between cultures. We believe that. And your clergy help you believe it by living it out. We walk it. And and so when you look at your clergy and you say, the bishop stinks, he should let you stay, this is horrible. Just know that your clergy and their head is going, well, I don't know what David's going, but I know in my head I was going, yeah, now I have to be the, you know, yay God girl. And I'm really kind of sad about leaving and it's hard to be the yay God girl when you're all so sad, but that is what I'm called to do and I will do it. And so as the church uh, began to say goodbye, here's what I think we at The Rock did not do well. Remember, that was a new church start, and, and that was my first new church start, and so I just don't think I did that very well. Here's, here's the thing I think about. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. I think that I encouraged them to be so excited about the new clergy that was coming that I forgot to tell them to be sad that I was going. (laughs) And also because sad is not a comfortable emotion for me. I I don't do it. We couldn't do it in our house growing up because we had 
uh, my house of origin uh, was foster care. And so we had children who came to us who died, you know, months after they arrived. And so, you know, my parentals said, well, we just won't do sad. That's how we'll avoid all this trouble. So I wasn't even very good at it. And so I think it was easier for me to not. And as a result, the church did not get a good chance to say goodbye in a way that they felt good about and that I felt good about. I still think we didn't do that very well. And it looks like y'all are already doing it well. I, I, I am so grateful for that, Lori, because I think it's healthy for us. We are grieving. This is a hard move for us when that happens. How many of you have read the five love languages? Okay, there are this author, I don't know. It's good, though. It's good language. So he says there's five love languages, physical touch, acts of service, gifts, words of affirmation, quality time. And, and, and the author says you give the one you need. It's a good thing for congregations to think about that, right? To think about that as they say goodbye. What what might the pastor what might the pastor's love language be? And how might we best show that we are grateful and that we will miss him or her? My love languages are two. One of them I don't mind admitting, the other one I feel silly admitting. Mine are physical touch. I don't mind that one, but I don't let anybody touch me. Isn't that weird? And my other one is gifts. Because in my house, there was nothing. There was often not even enough food. And so that, you know, that's something that I go, oh, oh, that must mean somebody. It's a silly love language in my eyes. However, it is many people's love language. And so that's just, I wish I had been brave enough to let myself be sad at the time I was transitioning. I had to hold it at bay a lot because I was the pastor and I still had another job to do with this new church start that I I wasn't quite done with. I regret that. I regret that. There are transitions everywhere during this time. Right? All right, I really do need a Kleenex now. Dang it, I'm going to cry and I'm not even good at it. (laughs) There are transitions everywhere during this time. and, And what happened for me at The Rock commonly happens for pastors. We begin to disengage a little bit, knowing that the new person is coming and We do it so much more sanely than we used to. My father-in-law was a United Methodist pastor in the Louisiana Conference. He died last year at age 93. What a man. But my husband is a PK. The best kind of PK. He got in some trouble. He knew it didn't define him. He knew God defined him. So he's used to moving, but here's how his moves went. Ready? Dad went to annual conference. They sat around the radio and listened to see if they were going to move or stay. That's harder. And then you move the next week. 
Bill says that growing up as a clergy kid, it was kind of like his friends were the friends that had dads who were in the military. Because they all kind of got the culture of you're here and then you're not here. And so the friends, the kids who grew up in the military culture um, knew what it meant to have friends and to be really fast friends in that time and know that you were not always going to be in physical proximity. They got it. Right? I would say that in this age, consultants' kids also get that. I mean, when I was working in consulting, I had a department of 40 folks in two offices, and here's how the conversations went in the spring. Well, your job next year is in Beaumont. (laughs) Have a good time. (laughs) There was no debate. You could always say, well, I'm not going to work for this company anymore. But we were a great company to work for. One year, my supervisor came to me. My vice president came to see me and said, okay, Tina, your job next year is in Chicago and Point Comfort. That's what I said. I said, I have two small children. I'm a single parent. Yeah, we figured that out. We're going to hire you a nanny. Your kids can go with you. Okay, whatever. It is not that uncommon to have transitions in life. The church is one among many places that have transitions. It's just that the nature of the church is so different, isn't it? Because ideally, we make ourselves vulnerable with each other. Because we do that, we see ourselves as family. And it's hard. How many of your families live in close proximity, close geographic proximity to you? Raise your hand if all of your family lives in close proximity to you. Cool. You're so in the minority. (laughs) We live in, in a society where families are not always in close proximity. Yeah, but despite that, remember Jeremiah 29.10, For I know the plans that I've made for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a future and a hope. God is every other stitch in this blanket for a reason. God is the constant that runs through this blanket for a reason. Because as my young protege looks around and sees the pain of moving and asks herself, well, I think I would like to do the deacon thing so I don't have to move. The real question is not what she wants, but where she's called. Our vocation, this is Fred Beekner's quote, and I can call him that because I've met him. (laughs) Um, Everybody else calls him Frederick Beekner, but um, his quote is, our vocation, what we are called to do, what we are made to do, is where our deep joy meets the world's deep need. And I don't care who you are, we are all called to find our vocation and then do it. I think she's called the elder. She is going to be the one that figures that out in the long run. But right now it's a kind of scary time as she sees clergy moving. Two more parts and then I'm going to sit down. <clears throat> Folks really do come and go. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. People really do come and go. How many of you have heard the term ambiguous loss? Where's Kathy? She's heard this term for sure. Ambiguous loss says that grief comes in many forms, not just when someone dies. And we handle grief differently. Remember earlier when I said that I grew up in my home of origin was foster care and we had kids come to our home that would die because they didn't survive their first home visit with their biologicals. Okay? Well, the way we did grief in our house was we either went to humor, and believe me, you do not want to hear the humor in our house. You hear it often with undertakers when they get together for a beer. (laughs) Or we went to anger. Okay, that's how we did grief. Humor or anger. We all do grief differently. You may find yourself being angry for no apparent reason. You may find yourself nitpicking at something that you know does not matter. That might be grief. And it's okay to stop yourself and say, Am I really annoyed at this? Or is this just grief? And then if you say the sentence that way, I want you to say this sentence next. There's no such thing as just grief. Grief is heavy and it will fill any room. Grief is real and Christ can comfort us in the midst of it. And so as you're doing this transition, as David is going, and I don't know if any of you have said this yet, but what I heard a lot was, we know you have to go, can we keep Bill and Eric? That's my husband and my son. (laughs) When I was annoyed, I said yes. (laughs) But my husband has a call to be a clergy spouse. He's very clear about it. He's discerned it. He married somebody and knew what he was getting himself into. He has just as genuine a call as I do. And let me tell you that at the Rock United Methodist Church, my husband was the person behind building the very first rainwater collection system ever put on any United Methodist Church in the United States. Yeah, we built that church as green as we could and he, we built in the rainwater system collection, collection into the basement because we knew we wanted to go there. But he was the one that raised the money outside of the church and that engineered it and that then volun- coordinated the volunteers to get the pipe laid and the whole system put together. And he had to walk away from that. He couldn't go back and make sure it was still working. He had to stop telling people that at his church they had a working rainwater collection system because at his church now they just have a lot of poor people. It was as hard a transition for him as it was for me. He just did it differently. It was hard. But together we thought about those things. If there was anything excellent, we thought about those things and we kept praying and offering that to God. 
Okay, last thing. What happens when we move? Here's the semi-rule. As ordained elders in the United Methodist Church, my job, our job, is to leave the old church alone to give space for you to fall in love with the new pastor. It's our job. We, as elders in the United Methodist Church, say that we will stay away. That if there's a funeral, we will not, even if people call us, we will not officiate. If there is a massive uh, illness, we will not go back. And we do that because one of the ways that we are elders, that we are clergy, is that when you are in crisis, we are present And part of our job is to represent Christ to you. And we are all called to the same thing. The new one is called just as much as we're called. After I left the rock, one of the families I just spent a lot of time with, he was a a lay leader in the church. His wife got breast cancer. His son, who was seven, had a tumor that grew so quickly in his leg that it broke his bone. And his daughter got pregnant. All within the span of three weeks after I left. The day we found out that his wife had serious breast cancer was also the day we found out that the trustee chair had lung cancer and probably wasn't going to survive. I love these people. I am not their pastor. Doesn't stop me from praying for them. I pray for them every day. And I watch their Facebook page to see what's going on. (laughs) That helps me pray for them. (laughs) But their pastor, their current pastor, is called to be present and to represent Christ to them. That's just my gig. Now, did I defriend them on Facebook? Uh-uh. <laughs> Facebook is changing the way we make these transitions. They're changing our friendships all over the place. The thing I love is that my husband, and he's, he doesn't like it when I say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way today. He's a decade older than me. <laughs> he doesn't like that. He's on Facebook, right? And so he's been able to maintain some of his friendships. But remember, he's a PK. So he was trained really well about how to do these transitions. Much, I think he's much better at it than I am. And so what, what he does is this. Sometimes, this is a hard thing, sometimes people in our congregation think that they're our friends, the clergy person. Because we are present at all of their intimate moments. We're present when their children are born. We're present when their parents die. We're present when their children die. We are present. They tell us, I have had people come into my office and tell me things that are very intimate. 
And so when you share something like that with someone, you, you are looking at that person as a friend because you would never share, especially if this is your first church experience, you would never share that with anybody but a really good friend. But here's the mark of friendship. Friendship is reciprocal. So my friends were present when I had to have a lump removed from my breast. But nobody in my congregation was. And that doesn't mean they don't love me. It just means that it's a different relationship. If all somebody has to talk to me about is what's going on in church, then they are probably a very good and wonderful brother or sister in Christ. And so Bill knows the rule. He, he is great. He's on Facebook. There's people that he talks to on Facebook. They don't talk about church. They talk about other really weird things. <laughs> he's very amazing. And also some of the stuff he says goes right over my head because he's very smart. So it's not that we can't have contact It's that our job as clergy is to stay away a little bit. Now, Lori, with your permission, I'm going to say two sentences about when somebody comes. No, no, because here's my deal. I think this is helpful when we go, too. And you've already done this more than once, man. You're a pro. (laughs) When, When we go somewhere, what we hope the most is that the incoming congregation is going to be welcoming. Not glommy. We don't want them to all show up the first day we move into the house. But we absolutely do want them to show up. To offer something that lets us know that they're thinking about us. When we, uh, when Bill and I moved to Parker Lane. No. There was 42,000 cockroaches in the kitchen. The water was backed up so that when I ran the dishwasher to get out the fetid water that had been there for three years because the previous pastor hadn't lived there, it came out the drain pipe for the washing machine. And when you open the front door, it smelled like cat urine. And no one, no one came to welcome us. No one. They were weary. They were just weary and they were worried about the person. They were worried about Carlos because he was beloved. And so it makes sense. And it made our start difficult. So as you pray the pain family to their next place, I want you to visualize as you pray for them the people who are going to stop by to welcome them in their new place. It's a really good way to pray. Brothers and sisters, I will stay and answer questions. I would encourage you to come. I'm going to be knitting over here, but I would encourage you to come and touch this blanket for Angel. But right now I can tell there's something else in the works, and so I'm going to pray us out. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for giving us this good work. We know that we are called to Sabbath and that reminds us that we are also called to good work. 
Bless us as we find our vocations or live our vocations, that we might do it faithfully following you, pointing our eyes always and only to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.